If you had some pain, say pain in your lower back or in your knee, what would you do? Take some Advil? Likely. See your doctor? Probably. If it went on long enough, you might even consider surgery. But when Eric Vance had chronic pain in his knee, he tried something a little different. She sort of put her mouth on my knee and sort of sucked and then spit and then sucked and spit. And she was pulling out a lot of the the bad feelings and putting it onto these little paper figurines. It's very strange to have someone suck on your knee. It's just a weird thing. Eric was in Mexico doing research for his book on the power of suggestibility. And the woman sucking on his knee? She was a shaman. But even though Eric knows all about how the power of belief can alter what we think and feel, he still had a surprising result. I walked out of that place with no knee pain. A majority of people in the U.S. believe that faith can heal. I'll be the first to say that there isn't any strong scientific data backing the idea of faith healing, if what you mean by that is healing that involves divine intervention. But if you mean a different type of healing, a belief in the power of a person or ritual to reduce pain, inflammation, or discomfort, that's another story, and one where science is catching up to something traditional healers have long recognized. A healing ritual is a combined product of physical elements and our mindsets. That's Stanford psychologist Aaliyah Crum. And what she means by mindsets is beliefs. Beliefs about whether a ritual, treatment, or even medicine will work. And once we bring beliefs into the picture, we're in the realm of what's been called the placebo effect. You've probably heard this term. It means the ability of a drug or treatment to heal that doesn't come from its chemical or physical properties, but from the beliefs people hold about them. And while all too often it seems like a disparaging term, a trick for gullible souls looking for a cure, it turns out that you, me, and everyone benefits from it each time we visit the doctor or pop a pill. It can be a powerful healing tool. I'm Dave DeSteno, and this is How God Works. Eric Vance was 18 years old the first time he went to the doctor. I had a stomach problem, and he was feeling for uh, appendicitis and a couple other things. And uh, he said, okay, you're, you're okay. It's growing pains. It felt very much like voodoo to me. And I said, wow, I haven't been missing much, have I? It wasn't that Eric had never been sick before. It's just that when he was, his parents didn't take him to the doctor's office. He and his family were Christian scientists. And that faith believes, among other things, in a different type of medical treatment. Basically, Christian scientists believe that the mind can heal the body, and in fact that it's more effective at, at healing the body than medicine, and that's why they don't generally go to doctors. So growing up, if Eric got sick or didn't feel well, he would have a healer from the Christian scientist community come to his house to treat him. You call a practitioner, a Christian science practitioner, sort of an advisor or a... Um, a healer, and you have a conversation about the Bible and about their, their textbook, and it's a lot of like getting a sense of calm. Basically, Christian scientists believe that you are already perfect. And it's a terrible analogy, but I always compare it to The Matrix, the movie The Matrix, where there is another sort of version of yourself that's outside of this sort of, as Yoda might say, crude matter, um, and that that's perfect. And you, you just have to see that. And then immediately the body will sort of fall into place. The Matrix? Yoda? Eric's metaphors might sound a little sci-fi-esque, 
But for the moment, let's set aside the particulars of the Christian science faith, or for that matter, any faith with healing rituals, and focus on the how instead of the what in terms of the healing process. In his job as a science writer and editor for the New York Times, that's the approach Eric takes. He no longer considers himself a Christian scientist, but he can still see how some of the faith's attitude towards healing makes sense. It's interesting because uh, a lot of the healing sessions are about getting calm. And you have a practitioner to help you get calm and get a feeling of sort of the inevitability of your healing because it's already happened. It's actually not a new idea. It you know it goes all the way back to the ancient Gnostics and this idea that that the physical world around you doesn't have any sway over sort of the higher spiritual or mental plane. Gnostic theology aside, what we can see in the healing practice is the perfect situation for a placebo effect. Two things are going on here. First, the healer is helping you feel calm and trust in their expertise or power, which in turn also helps with the second thing believing in the specifics of the ritual itself. Basically, a placebo effect is anything where you find an improvement in a medical condition that is not related to the drug or the treatment that you're getting. They're also called nonspecific effects. But the ones I'm interested in are really more chemical and brain-related, where the brain steps in and changes how you're feeling. And those are measurable. The brain actually can, can bring healing. Christian science isn't the only religion that has healing rituals. Catholicism and other Christian traditions do too. So does Islam Sufism. But perhaps nowhere are they more prevalent than in the many indigenous shamanic traditions. That's where Eric went to learn about other types of ceremonies and to see what all of these healing rites have in common. I was living in Mexico City. You have all this wonderful sort of mix of traditional and modern and, um, and ancient philosophies and mashik healing healers right alongside Catholic priests. So I became very interested in how other people approached healing, you know, especially healing that wasn't, that wasn't science-based, either because they couldn't afford it or because uh, of tradition. And what I found was that I had a lot in common with these people. I mean, we could definitely speak the same language, having my background um, and understanding that, you know, some of these experiences are not only potentially real, but they're also very important. And they're a huge way that we define ourselves. So finding that sort of connective tissue between them and me and the rest of the world really opened up this idea that this is something universal and we can, we can talk about it. As he continued to do research, Eric didn't just read and talk about healing ceremonies. He decided to give them a try himself, to understand how they work. And that brings us back to that shaman Eric mentioned at the top of the episode. This was later on in my reporting process. I did have some knee pain. She was going to be using these little paper figurines to sort of absorb a lot of my pain. And then she was gonna suck the, the blood out through my knee. Actually, when she said she was going to do that, I thought she was actually going to cut a hole in my knee and suck out my blood. Uh, she didn't. It was a, it was a, it was more of a representational thing where she sort of put her mouth on my knee and sort of sucked and then spit and then sucked and spit and she was pulling out a lot of the the bad feelings and putting it onto these little paper figurines. And um, one shaman was speaking a, an indigenous language that was then translated into Spanish that was then translated in English. And I my Spanish is decent, but it's not good enough to 
I, you know, I was getting the third, you know, like mm-hmm. sort of a third version of it. And we still had this great connection because she was just so good at, at sort of seeing me and, and, and listening and her inter- interpersonal skills were just so strong. So let's, that, yeah, let's, let's, because I think the connection with the healer is a really important element. So can you kind of walk me through that, that healing? Um, well, it's very strange to have someone suck on your knee. It's just a weird thing. Um, and so I was caught up in the, in the performance of it. And I was also caught up in her personality and she had a lot of confidence and she knew what she was doing. And, uh, I walked out of that place with no knee pain and, um, you know, I, I thought there was going to be a big, you know, explosion burning of all my evils. And I was like, what are you gonna do with the, you know, all the bad blood? And she was like, I'll toss it up and garbage. It's fine. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, all right. She's like, but it's not in you anymore. And I, and I walked out and, you know, the, the knee pain came back, I think the next day, but I had no knee pain, um, all that night. And I, I was sort of living in the glow of being with her. To me, what's most surprising about Eric's lack of pain is that he didn't go in believing in the specifics of the ritual. He knew there's no way that knee sucking could fix the joint mechanics that were actually causing him pain. But he does believe in the power of placebos. And as it turns out, that just might be enough. You see, one of the most interesting things scientists are learning about the placebo effect is that it actually works even if you know what you're taking is a placebo as long as you also believe in the placebo effect itself. Yeah, that's what's amazing. And they do these open placebo trials where they tell you this is a placebo. And I think when people hear about these studies, they often think like, oh, it's some sort of like small print and you don't notice it. No, I mean, like it is a, they ask you, they define placebo. Then they, afterwards they ask you, was this a placebo? And you have to, you know, respond, yes, I understand this was a placebo. And it still works on a, a smaller but significant size of of the people. And of course, the question is, you know, why? How can this happen if you know it's nothing? The simple reason is there's there's two types of placebo. There's one that's an internal placebo. It's it's one that is just based on conditioning, on uh, classical conditioning, where every time you take a pill, you feel better, especially for something like pain. And then at a certain point, you've just done that so many times where you've taken a pill and you felt better that when you take a pill, it's a placebo and it looks like a normal pill your brain just simply drops in the drugs that it needs to make you feel better because it's easier for your brain to change reality than it is to change an expectation. Once your brain has a certain established expectation for that little white circle thing that you take and makes you feel better, if you take one and it doesn't make you feel better, your brain doesn't want to sort of reorganize everything that it knows about little white circles. It would just much rather make you feel better so that everything makes sense. So in some ways with, with open label placebos, which as we were saying are, are placebos where you know that you are taking something that is a placebo. But if you believe in the power of the placebo effect, it's setting up an expectation in much the same way as if you believed in the power of this healing ritual to heal you works. But I know you had this experience where you are actually being shocked. <laughs> And and the way you felt the pain was actually modulated by that expectation. I got a chance to go to the to a laboratory in the NIH uh, headquarters out in Bethesda, Maryland, and I met this amazing scientist who basically uh, hooked me up to this machine. And she said, "You're going to get two kinds of shocks. 
One will be sort of a, a small electric shock that feels kind of like a pinch. It's just like a little zip. And then the other one was going to be sort of a seven on the pain scale, which that one, it was hard enough that my foot twitched. Like it was, it was not comfortable. It was painful. Um, it was, uh, it was, it was rough. And every time I saw that one, I saw a red light. And every time I saw the little one, I got a green light. Then she just went back and forth, shocking me. Red light, green light, red light, green light. And to the point where, you know, every time I saw that red light, you know, I'd get this, oh God, here it comes, here it comes. And it's interesting that she would actually show me the light and then pause for a second and then give me the shock. So I had plenty of time to sort of build up my expectations and get sort of braced for the impact. And on the last run, so just for, you know, half an hour or so, and then on the last run, she, it felt like maybe she turned up the green light a little bit. Like it was just a little more painful. It's like, oh, well, maybe it was two as opposed to one. And then she came in and she said, you know, you did a great job. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, on that last round, we gave you the large shock every time. Hmm. And I, I mean, I'm not crazy. Uh, I didn't feel the pain of the large shock. When she showed me a green light and then gave me the large shock, my brain basically stepped in and said, no, 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 this is, this is a smaller shock, so we're just gonna make that pain lower. That was a very real experience. And it made a, a shock that would otherwise have made my leg twitch go down to basically a hard pinch. And again, that's a, that's a sort of fabricated placebo response in a laboratory. Imagine what would happen if, if it was attached to your, your whole culture and your whole history and something that, that was part of your identity. So within traditional cultures, right, where these types of, of healings are taken more for granted and, and part of life, is there a way that they keep that expectation going? I mean, that's a really good point. So there's sort of two sides to that. On the one hand, having been in a community like that and grown up in a community like that, I mean, I think that maintenance through the, the culture is very important. You know, you go to church every week, you know, you have your struggles week in, week out. You have, you know, this, the pain is higher today, it's less tomorrow, it's, and it's a, it's a process. That's the community sort of continuing that experience. But there's a deeper question about whether or not if done correctly, placebo responses can be permanent. And it's most interesting around chronic pain. There was a, a researcher actually working with veterans, people who had come back from the battlefield and they'd lost limbs. And that's something where the, the risk of chronic pain going forward, not just phantom limb, but like just all kinds of just chronic pain related to the injury can be just phenomenal, right? And so his job was to make sure that going forward, these people wouldn't be on opioids for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And what he did is he started giving them opioids alongside sensory experiences, like eating a caramel or listening to jazz or smelling eucalyptus trees. And every time they took the drug, they, they would have this experience. They listened to jazz or do whatever they were supposed to do. And it was all based on their own backgrounds and things that they had experienced and things that made them feel good. And after a while, he stopped giving the drugs and just gave the sensory experience. And, and sure enough, he's had you know, phenomenal, phenomenal luck with helping people recover from these injuries and, and, and avoiding chronic pain. You're basically training your brain to minimize the pain experience. And there is a theory out there that argues that that is basically what, what the brain does. And that when you experience chronic pain, it's simply the brain not making it go away properly in the way that it normally does. And, and it's debatable, but it's an interesting idea that part of what your brain does is, is making chronic pain go away. And when you have chronic pain, your brain's not doing its job and you can train it to do its job. 
I think there's a lesson from that that we can take, you know, in the sciences to understand that, you know, your brain has a lot of power to affect change. And some of that change could be permanent. It's, it's, hmm. it clearly happens and it's probably supposed to happen. So the idea that a placebo has to be temporary, it may not actually track with reality, depending on how you, you know, how you see it and, and how creative you're willing to get. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone's going to say that, you know, placebos are the panacea, but I th- certainly agree with you that they are a tool that we shouldn't disparage. It's like, oh, that's just the placebo effect. I mean, just the placebo effect is really a damaging phrase, I think. Um, and it, it also makes you feel a little crazy when it works. And yet it works on everybody. I mean, you do these trials, you got the active group, you got the placebo group and the placebo group, a third of them respond to the placebo. It's like, well, those people are somehow broken. So um, so let's let's get rid of them. And we'll do a whole other trial with like just the good ones, right? And this is this is a very common, uh, actually, experimental design. And then it's like, as soon as you do that, more placebo responders appear, you know. And so on the second run, you do it again, and you can get more, and you might get a third, you know, of, you know, like of the people you thought were the quote unquote good ones, you know, and they're responding to the placebo. And it's the reason is because we all respond to placebos. You just it, it depends on the day, it depends on the way it's phrased. It, you know, none of us are immune to this. None of us are, you know, somehow. Vulcans who can, you know, who can see through only the truth. Like we're all susceptible. Could you imagine a drug company saying, oh, well, these 30% of people actually responded to the drug. Let's get them out of the trial. <laughs> They're not the good <laughs> one. It's exactly the opposite of what people would do. Uh, yeah. I, I always say that the placebo response is a is a drug company's worst enemy right up until the point when it gets FDA approval. And then it's your best friend. That's um, right. Because, That's right. you know, the, the placebo effect is keeping you from getting your, especially with a pain drug, keeping you from getting that thing past the agencies. But as soon as it does get past, companies want to hype up that placebo as much as they can. They want to have advertisements that are going to make you really believe this stuff works because now it's helping them. Now it's aiding the drug. They're trying to make you have confidence. So when the placebo is just about as effective as the chemicals, that makes the medications look not so great in their clinical trials. But if and when the drug is finally approved, then the companies are happy to ramp up their use of the placebo effect with marketing. All those drug commercials you see on TV are there to increase your faith that the drugs work. Are you the kind of person that wants to live a good life, but understands just how big a task that can be? Well then, I want to tell you about another podcast that I really love, called No Small Endeavor. No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Virtue ethics professor Lee C. Camp interviews musicians like Amy Grant and Ashley Cleveland, actors like Rain Wilson and Martin Sheen, theologians like N.T. Wright, and New York Times bestselling authors like Anna Lemke and Malcolm Gladwell. Lee is an expert interviewer, and I always walk away from these conversations enriched and challenged, both of which help me on the road toward living a good life. Subscribe now to No Small Endeavor, wherever you get your podcasts. Writing like Eric's shows that the scientific community has become more open to studying the power of belief to heal. But that wasn't always the case. In fact, until fairly recently, Aliyah Crum says it was an interest any aspiring scientist might have worried about pursuing. 
I think the assumption is always, oh, people in academia, serious science and serious medicine are going to think that's far out and, you know, new agey and doesn't have a place there. But Aaliyah wasn't put off by that. She says her upbringing might have had something to do with giving this seemingly far out stuff a closer look. So I grew up in a very interesting environment as a child. My father, Tom Crum, taught transcendental meditation and insight meditation, and he was a master in the art of Aikido. Uh, He helped found Windstar Foundation with uh, the late John Denver, which was, you know, a place where people uh, could come, psychologists, environmentalists, uh, humanists could come and talk about how they could make their lives and the world better uh, through an inquiry into the mind and the body and the spirit. What I realized when I went to Harvard as an undergrad was that that was not a normal upbringing, at least for most <laughs> most <laughs> of the other uh, most of the students who were attending Harvard at the time. Uh, that that was sort of unusual. That was sort of a strange, you know, way of of existing as a child. And when I got to Harvard, I really became inspired by the possibility that we could look into this uh, from a scientific, from a psychological, from an academic standpoint to start to understand what was going on. What is there? What's not there? How is this working and why is it working? One of the things I really want to explore with you is how deeply this effect runs, the power of belief on our bodies. So, you know, most people would believe in the power of suggestion that it can make us do something or think something. But I'm not sure that they'd guess it can actually affect things as fundamental as body chemistry or hunger. And so I know one of your most famous examples is something that I and many other people like to call the milkshake study. Um, So I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, so I I got interested in this work by becoming fascinated by just the phenomenon of placebo effects, just how your belief about a medication could change, you know, not just how you say you feel, but how your body responds. So this study was really motivated by a simple question, which was, do our beliefs about what we're eating change our body's physiological response to that? And so to test this question, we brought people into our lab under the impression that they would be drinking milkshakes that were designed to meet different metabolic needs in the hospital. And they would come in at two time points and drink two milkshakes that had drastically different nutrient contents, but that tasted, you know, as as similar as possible. So the catch was, in reality, they were the exact same milkshakes at both time points. However, at one time point, they thought it was this very indulgent, high-fat, high-calorie shake. And at another time point, they thought it was a low-fat, low-calorie, sort of sensible diet shake. So here they are, drinking the exact same milkshake, but under two very different mindsets or sort of impressions of what that shake was. And in response, we were measuring their body's gut peptides, and in particular, we were looking at ghrelin, which is a gut peptide that medical experts call the hunger hormone. And it's related to hunger, but also metabolic regulation. So ghrelin levels tend to rise in anticipation of food, signaling to the brain, hey, go eat something. And they tend to fall in response to the consumption of the food, signaling to the brain, hey, you can stop eating and also speeding up the metabolism to burn the nutrients that were just ingested. And what we found in this study is that when people thought they were consuming 
the indulgent shake. Their body's ghrelin levels dropped at a, you know, threefold steeper rate than when they thought they were consuming a sensible shake. So what did we learn? Well, first, you know, we answered our question, do our mindsets or beliefs about food shape our body's response? The answer is yes, it does. It's not just the objective nutrients that influence how our bodies respond. It's also our beliefs or expectations about those nutrients. So it's not like my mind is tricking itself. It's actually the body is actually expecting this, and so it responds to it like it expected it to be. Is that fair? That's fair. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I think, you know, the most common response I get to this and and other studies that we've done is sort of surprise. It's like, whoa, you know, how could that be? You know, (laughs) I think that's because we have this sort of very, you know, uh, biomechanical understanding of nutrition in the body, and we have a hard time understanding how our mind can influence that. But when you think about it a little bit more deeply, it starts to make a lot of sense, right? Our, our brains, our minds, our, their whole purpose is to both help serve internal regulation of the body, but also to serve external regulation of our behavior. So our, you know, an eating, a metabolic maintenance is a combined product of what's going on in the body and also our ability to procure food, get more food, uh, find the sustenance. And so if your brain thinks this isn't going to be enough, <laughs> right? That's going to communicate to your, your body, hey, slow down m- metabolism. I'm going to keep these hunger signals up high until we go find more food. Uh, so when you think about the whole system and the you know evolutionarily designed um, ways in which our brains and bodies function, it, it actually starts to make a lot of sense. We just haven't done enough work to really understand what's behind that. How far does it go? How important is it? <laughs> you know, can you really, could we change our weight, you and I, by changing the way we think about our food? I hope the answer uh, is yes. A lot more needs to be tested. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing well, great on my own, in other ways. Um, I think your work shows that there's more to using placebos effectively than just saying, you know, pop this pill, right? Mm-hmm. Is there is there a social element to it? And by that, you know, when we think of healing rituals, it's not just that the person touches you with with a staff or 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 chants over you in certain ways or lays their hands on you. But there's also this kind of social relationship that you have with that healer. And I'm wondering what role kind of trust or comfort or belief in the healer, him or herself, plays beyond just the actual here's here's the pill or here's the the sacred item to touch it's critical the total effect of anything whether that be a, a medicine or a food or the stress we're experiencing or a you know a healing ritual is a combined product of the sort of physical elements and our mindsets about it but where do those mindsets come from, right? Those mindsets are shaped by the social context. They're shaped by the words that the doctor or healer says to you. They're shaped by the labels or branding of the drugs. They're shaped by the credentials of the hospital or the cultures that we live in that kind of speak to us that this is or is not a valid you know, healing <laughs> substance. We've tried to explore a little bit of that in our lab. 
uh, we brought people in under the impression that they were going to be involved in a food study. And in preparation for that study, they had to do a histamine skin prick test to see if they were going to be allergic to any of the foods we were giving them. And this histamine skin prick test involves, you know, a provider putting a drop of histamine on the forearm of the patient. And uh, histamine reliably produces an allergic response in patients, kind of like a mosquito bite. But what we do in our lab is we try to treat that. We had a provider apply a placebo cream uh, after the allergic reaction had started. Mm -hmm. And in one condition, the provider said, this is a, you know, antihistamine cream. It's going to make your rash and irritation go away. And in another condition, they said, this is a histamine agonist. It might make your rash and irritation worse. Uh, so we're actually looking at placebo and nocebo effects, which is, you know, the effect of negative expectations or belief. But what we were really interested in the study was how the qualities of the physician and the social context might influence the degree to which those placebo or nocebo effects took hold. So we also varied those qualities. Uh, we varied two qualities that we know matter as social psychologists. One is warmth. So in one condition, the provider was looking the patient in their eyes, connecting with them on a personal level. And in another condition, she was more cold, sort of looking at the computer screen and not really engaging. We also varied perceptions of the provider's competence. So in one condition, the provider's badge read fellow at the Stanford Allergy Center. Everything was done with precision and so forth. And in the other condition, we had questions about that. So the badge read student doctor. And <laughs> when she put on the blood pressure cuff, she sort of fumbled around to mm -hmm. sort of introduce some skepticism into, is this person really, <laughs> really a good physician? And what we found was really interesting. If you just look at the placebo and nocebo effects, we see what other studies have shown, which is if you believe this cream is going to make your rash better, actually the allergic reaction reduced at a steeper rate than when people believed it was going to make it worse. So the physical size of the allergic reaction differed. But that difference was influenced by these qualities of the provider. So when the provider was high in warmth and high in competence, really conveying a sense that they got the patient and they got the medicine, that effect was even stronger. And in fact, when the provider was low in warmth and competence, when they were sort of not connected with the patient and their credentials were questioned, what they said had no difference at all. So we, there was no placebo effect, no nocebo effect. Mm. She could have said it was going to be good for them or bad for them. It, it just didn't matter. So here you can see that, you know, on average, beliefs about uh, treatment in this context can shape our physical response. But they're not inevitable, and they're measurably and meaningfully shaped by who's helping shape our beliefs. What are our, you know, <laughs> feelings about the context that we're in? It's interesting because the two elements you mentioned there, feeling social warmth and feeling competence, are two of the fundamental pillars that, that underlie how much we trust people. It's really interesting because when you look at many healing ceremonies, there is a lot of time spent both to make the healer both seem very, very empathetic and to have a relationship with you, but also to have that aura of competence. And, and in healing ceremonies, that competence can be competence as a healer or 
some divine power that they are imbued with. But it's just fascinating to see that that those beliefs lay on top of the basic placebo effect, or can even wipe it out if you feel that you can't trust or believe in this person at all. And speaking as someone who had lots of allergies as a kid, I remembered having all those kinds of skin wheel tests. And the fact that my belief could determine how big that wheel is to me is just amazing. The fact that our mindsets or beliefs matter, the fact that the social context, the warmth uh, and competence of a healer matters, does not mean there isn't an objective substance at sure, play, right? There, it might be a real medication in some cases. And like you said, it can strengthen the effect of a active treatment or therapy, or it could diminish it, in some cases, completely derail it. Well, this is the important thing, you know, I mean, really what your work and other people's work shows is that modern medicine's reliance primarily on the pharmaceutical substance is missing this other element that will increase the efficacy of our treatments. It doesn't mean that, you know, if if I'm arguing that we should look at these spiritual practices, it doesn't mean let's do that instead of actually have real medicine. No, of course we're going to use modern science. But there are things to learn there that can augment those treatments. A hundred percent. You know, studying placebos in their own right is fascinating. It's mm-hmm. interesting, right, you know, to show that you can get some response with with nothing. But what's more important, I think, for the health of people in the world is to understand how can we better, more effectively leverage beliefs mm-hmm. and the social context to improve active drugs and therapies. Belief in the power of rituals to heal isn't a trick of the mind or a glitch in rationality. It's actually a potent tool that is innate in all of us, a tool that spiritual healers, and now their modern counterparts, are using to help people overcome discomfort and disease. Whether a divine element sometimes comes into play is a question I can't answer definitively. There's no data to support it, but that's part of the definition of miracles. What I can say, though, is that if we think of placebos simply as sugar pills, we're doing ourselves a disservice. They work best when you also trust and feel comfortable with the person providing them. That trust and comfort play a role even in modern medicine. Studies show that people who believe in and feel more comfortable with their physicians have better outcomes from the same treatments than do people who don't feel as comfortable and trusting. What's more, placebos work even if you know they operate by the power of suggestion. So the next time you're feeling a bit under the weather, do see your doctor, but then come home Have a friend or family member wrap you in a special blanket and have a warm drink that your grandmother swore could cure anything. And maybe you just might start to feel a little better. Next time on How God Works. For many people, we've just come through the joys of a season of gifts. A new bike, those shoes you've been eyeing, a watch. It's undeniable that receiving gifts feels, well great. But the joy isn't just on the receiving end. Giving gifts can make us just as happy as getting them, maybe even happier. Spending on other people tends to make you happier in the moment, and also it tends to last a little bit longer. And that's true not only for giving gifts to loved ones, but even for charitable giving to people you might never even meet. But compared to spending the same money on yourself, We typically find that even the anonymous, no credit, nobody will ever know, country you'll never go to, is still better than buying yourself another stupid thing. 
And that's why Islam's practice of zakat finds ways to make giving, even when it seems more like tax accounting, a way to bring joy. It's a difficult process because you have to calculate and you have to come make sure that the causes that you are giving to align with the theological concepts. So there is that hard work. But that effort in itself is joyful. That's next time on How God Works. How God Works is hosted and written by me, Dave DeSteno. Our senior producer is Josie Holtzman of Future Projects. Associate producer is Sophie Eisenberg. Our executive producer is Genevieve Sponsler. Music and post-production mix and master by Merritt Jacob. The executive producer of PRX Productions is Jocelyn Gonzalez. This podcast was also made possible with support from the John Templeton Foundation. If you want to learn more, you can head to my website, www.davedesteno.com. 